everyone. Today, I want to share with you a book that I just finished reading and just some of the things that I learned from it and picked out from it. So it's called The Upward Spiral by Alex Korb. And overall, I really like this book. In fact, I would recommend everyone read this if, so long as you have just a tinge of anxiety and depression in your life, or even, even if not depression, just anxiety. And I would imagine that's most people, most millennials and Gen Z people. So I would highly recommend reading it. Almost mandatory, basically, is how I feel about it. And it's especially great in conjunction with Atomic Habits. So it's a great supplement or part two to Atomic Habits. Because if you put two and two together, at least this is my point of view, you have anxiety, you have depression, it's making you not perform at the level you want to perform at. So you pick up a book like Atomic Habits to try to find ways to fix your bad habits. The problem is, if those bad habits are laced with anxiety and depression, which was the situation with me trying to read that book, Atomic Habits tells you how, but it really doesn't tackle deep enough the, you know, the sludge on top of why you're not able to do it already. It gives you the how, but it doesn't give, tackle the psychology behind it. So the upward spiral takes that step further. It gives you more clarity on why depression affects your performance. And that clarity sometimes is enough because it gives you an understanding and some sense of control and enlightenment, right? But it also gives you pragmatic tips too then on, okay, now that we've told you what is going on in your head, why it is, what can you actually do about it? So it's leveled deeper into your head than Atomic Habits is. Um, so let me back up and explain the title. So Upward Spiral is the, how can I say, opposite? I feel like there's a more eloquent way to say that, but I don't know off the top of my head. So we all know Downward Spiral, or just spiraling downwards in general. It's, I'll give you an example. For me, you, <laughs> I get lonely at night because I live alone and then in my loneliness, I will snack and snack and eat and watch Netflix. It's a bad habit I picked up from my previous relationship. But in so doing, then I feel fat. As I feel fat, then I feel even more depressed and hate myself. And then so I eat more. I go out for round two, round three, whatever. And in so doing, now I really don't want to go outside because I feel fat and I don't want the world to see me. So then I stay home. So it's a downward sprawl. Stay home, feel even more lonely, eat even more. And overall, you add that up a couple times, I become a recluse. That's a downward spiral. The upward spiral is the equal opposite of that, where you think about it, if you start building decent habits and get your life together, it all adds up as well. Compound effects. Let's say you start getting your sleep right. Okay, well, now you have more energy in the day. Now that you have more energy in the day, you're not binging as much. You have more energy, you go work out. And now that you work out, you start to feel better, even better. So then you're, you're more social at the gym. You're more social with friends. You make more friends, then you're even happier. And it just all continues to cycle upwards. So that's the upward spiral. So the whole theme and thesis of this book is that a big common thing about depression and anxiety is that you spiral downwards. In the equal opposite effect, you can also create an upward spiral as well. And here's how you can do that. So that's my summary. Overall, I already said I recommend it. I personally rated this five out of five on Goodreads, and I found it pretty helpful during my recent bout of depression, which I will elaborate on in another episode. So with that all said and done, here are some of the things that I gained from it in no particular order. Of course, though, I have paraphrased a lot of it, 
And some of it too is just me repackaging it to you through how I have interpreted it. So I've added extra things and anecdotes that I connect to these things I've learned. Um, So it's not purely straight from the book. You're getting my words as well. So the first thing is everyone's themes of depression are different. Or put another way, everyone's depression shows up in different ways or is triggered by different ways. So in my previous example, I mentioned loneliness for me. For me and other people, some triggers or sensitivities are loneliness. But for other people, more introverts like my sister, it doesn't matter for them. So that's something to be cognizant about and really think actively. Like, What are the triggers for me? And the reason that's important is he mentions it later in the book in that he's going to give us all these different tips and remedies, right? But you have to cater that towards your own issues. So if you are especially sensitive about loneliness and lack of social interaction, then you better make sure that you incorporate friendship into your system because the ROI that you receive on having social contact is going to be way higher than the people who are introverted. Let's talk about what makes someone more susceptible to depression than someone else. So genes do play a role, right? But it's also childhood stress. Childhood stress can talk about trauma, but it all can also can be the stress that the mother had while she was pregnant with you. It also is random luck, unfortunately. Sometimes little things happen in your body that cause a change in mood for better or worse. And the body and brain is so complex that it's hard to explain everything. Something's just downright impossible to explain. And it makes no, uh, it's diminishing returns to try to rationalize every single mood improvement you have. So sometimes it's just luck and we can't explain it more than that. That being said, one of the things that does make, uh, that does impact or cause anxiety is having too much uncertainty. I definitely feel this. I've realized I really don't do well with uncertain environments, like when I'm in between jobs, things like that. And one of the ways you can cope with that then is to try to make decisions as soon as possible to narrow down the amount of unknown you have. At the same time, you can also focus mentally on what you can control. This reminds me personally of stoicism and mental note to myself might be something to revisit. Get good enough. So don't focus on perfection. Just choose the first thing that seems good enough. A good example I do in my own life is when I choose a restaurant, I personally don't enjoy choosing restaurants, so I don't have it in me to try to find the perfect restaurant. I will just choose the first one that shows up on the first page of Yelp that looks good enough. And this obviously can apply to other aspects of life too. Optimism. So optimism is very helpful and When you say optimism, people usually think, oh, look at the glass half full. You can also think of it this way, daydreaming. So daydreaming about a big, brighter future just for the sake of daydreaming is helpful because there is an element of optimism to it. I like daydreaming because it's a very low risk type of optimism. So it's a daydream. So it's kind of like pie in the sky a little bit. But if you are daydreaming, There is ever so slightly a small sliver of you that believes it could happen. And that's where the optimism comes in. But it's so small, it's not like I'm putting it out in the world and saying it will happen. That can make you feel more vulnerable and takes more confidence. So daydreaming just for the sake of daydreaming, great exercise to get some optimism seeped in there. 
But if you do have enough confidence, sure, go ahead and daydream with the mindset that what you're daydreaming about will happen as opposed to it could happen. Talking about routines and habits, we all know that we're mostly made out of habit, not actual willpower, but let's unpack that some more. When it comes to habits, when they first get formed, it's often dopamine-driven or pleasure-driven, and that's why it's very easy to build bad habits because bad habits tend to release a lot of dopamine, i.e., no, e.g., junk food. Um, smoking, drinking, porn. The thing is, though, once a habit gets set, it becomes a pure habit. And so you don't actually need the reward at the end of it to make yourself do it because it starts being happening simply out of the pure power of repetition. So that bears repeating, no pun intended, repetition is all you need to think about and worry about when you are trying to create a new habit. Don't worry too much about everything else. Don't overthink it. Just know it's going to be through the sheer power of repetition. Now, let's go back to bad habits. Habits are triggered by stress. And this makes sense because you think about diets, for example. I tend to be good on my diet, as with many people, when I'm happy, when I'm not stressed. But when I'm stressed with school and work, that's when you fall out of it. You don't have that willpower because when you're under stress, the power shifts from your neocortex, your prefrontal cortex, the one that has the willpower and makes the decisions of a higher brain. And it goes back into your amygdala, I believe. I can't, don't remember the exact brain part, but it goes back to your animal side. So the habit. So in other words, stress triggers habits. It will especially trigger old habits. So one thing that helps if you're trying to improve is to avoid stress. Obviously, much simpler said than done. But it is good to at least know. I remember when I heard this for the first time when I was listening to this book, I just felt so much clarity and validation because that is exactly how my behaviors have been. Whenever I'm stressed, I fall back on old habits I'm not thinking out of willpower. I just become in this zone of grabbing food again. So know that when you are stressed, you fall back on habits, even if those habits are not helpful to you. For example, staying up late and not sleeping when you have a ton of work to do and then it, you know it makes you feel worse the next day and it's just making your work life even more hellish. But again, you will just fall back into doing that even though it's not helping. Another thing to talk about in terms of binge eating or just bad habits is it can't be understated to try to avoid your triggers. So for me, example, I will eat whatever I have in the house. If it's there in front of me, I will eat it. So when I think about studying for the LSAT, that's one of the conditional logic things you can say. If there's food, I will eat it. So then obviously I shouldn't have food in the house, right? That would be me avoiding my trigger. One other thing about downward spirals is sitting is the new smoking. So be mindful of that because we all generally work corporate America jobs. We sit all day. And I don't know. I've never really challenged sitting. You know, I know that they have ergonomic stretches. I know you don't want to slouch. I know all that. But I didn't realize how bad stretching was. And it's not like he elaborated on demonizing stretching or not stretching, sitting. But he did say, I mean, you sit for extended periods, 
it is not natural. It is not good for you. So you should make sure to get up and move every now and then. And I think just hearing it from a book that's talking about depression made me realize, okay, that's probably something I should do because it's not coming from some OSHA thing. It's not coming from some weird Gen Xers who are telling me to do stupid little neck stretches every 15 minutes for who knows why. This is coming from a way of mitigating my anxiety and depression. Anyways, exercise. So now we start talking about different ways we can improve our mood and engage an upward spiral. Exercise is one of them. The biggest, most powerful thing that stood out to me when I heard that, when I read this was, of course you don't feel like exercising. Of course you don't. You're sitting on your couch depressed. You have no energy. You just want to hide away. Of course you don't feel like going to the gym. And of course you think it won't help because at least for me, I relate to that. I feel like I need to get rid of the depression through my head by thinking about my life in a different way. I don't believe that doing some squats is going to fix my life problems. When you hear that, you can tell yourself with confidence that is just the depression speaking. Depression is a very powerful, stable state in that it keeps you there, so it keeps you depressed, so it prevents you from wanting to do things, and it's also a very isolating state. So know that. Thank your depression for its opinion and go do your exercise anyway. Exercise has effects just like antidepressants and just like opioids. So that was also powerful for me to learn because I thought of going on antidepressants recently and to learn that I can get those for free, free of risk through exercise and also opioids, natural opioids, some powerful shit. That's a good incentive for me to exercise. Let's see. Okay, now let's talk about creating good habits to replace your bad habits and also spark an upward spiral. Know that it takes time. It is going to take time. And these things that you do, including the exercise I just talked about, will likely not feel like it's doing anything the first few times. You're going to work out. You're going to expect that you feel a lot better and you won't. And then you're going to think, well, clearly it didn't work. So why bother? Because it didn't help me. I went through that very recently. And again, you tell yourself, you need to override this. If there's a couple things I realized, there's two things you need to override, which is A, the fact that you don't want to do something, do it anyway, because that's your depressed brain speaking. And B, you don't feel a difference because even if you don't feel it, it's because it takes time to kick in. On a neurological level, very, very tiny, tiny little molecules in your brain and little electrolytes and whatever else, you know, at that tiny, tiny level, there are changes happening, just not big enough yet for you to feel it. So override that feeling that it's not helping and do it anyway. Focus on doing and living and less of checking in constantly of, am I feeling better yet? Is this helping it? It reminds me of remembering that there's no quick fix. Even if you want to lose weight, it's no quick fix. Just keep going. So now we know it's going to take time. We also know that it, you are going to fail. You are going to fail because you're going to slip up and be stressed and fall back on your old habits. And knowing that now, and also knowing that I talked about, it's all about pure repetition. Don't overthink it. You also then should not overbeat yourself up. Because counterintuitively, it makes sense if you think about it, the more you beat yourself up, the more anxious you become because now you're, you know, imagining yourself as a guilty fat pig. 
that gives you more anxiety, which again, we talked about now kicks you back into reverting into old habits even more because now you're stressed. So be gentle on yourself. Realize that your brain literally just needs to be trained with repetition, much like a dog. Treat yourself nicely like a little baby. And when you mess up, acknowledge it, but move on because you knew you were going to mess up in the first place. Now, if you do have some willpower accumulated because it's a good day and you don't have as much stress from work, then yes, use all the willpower you can to build that habit because in the beginning, the wiring in your brain is going to be weak. So if you do have some sort of stock, use that. But if not, don't worry about it. This all being said, um, I want to go back to that comment I made about the whole, you have to override those two things of feeling like you don't want to go and that it's not helping. This was impactful for me in hindsight to hear this as a takeaway, but admittedly, when I was in the middle of my depression, it was not helpful. I had zero willpower and mental fortitude to override how I was feeling. If I did, I probably wouldn't be so depressed. So I just want to acknowledge that that is helpful, but I understand that's probably actually the hardest thing to do out of everything I'm sharing. Okay, let's talk about sleep. So not rocket science. He just says sleep better. He talks about something called sleep hygiene, which is much like dental hygiene. It's a system that you put together to keep your sleep in the best condition possible, which is things like have a certain bedtime, dark, no distractions in your room, no lights, make sure it's comfortable for you, whether it's d smells that you need to get rid of or sounds, things like that. Um, but the things that stood out to me, little tip here, it helps when you have more light during the day. So that's cool. The other thing is get a routine for bed. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But slow down the pace for your bedtime routine because you can't have your bedtime routine be the same pace that you operate the rest of your day. I'm a very go, go, go person. So my bedtime routine cannot be go, go, go. And that's when I personally started realizing, okay, I'm going to stop listening to music as I get ready for bed because as much as I love it, you know, and you get all hyped up when you're showering, that's the problem. You get hyped up. I get hyped up and I start dancing when I should be winding down. So that was helpful for me. And do something ritual-like. Make your bedtime routine something kind of cute and fun and ritual-like. Like for me, I started making sweet herbal tea. That helps. And it also helps to enhance, enhance that like feeling of a slower pace. And the other thing was in the depth of my depression, I struggled so much with sleeping early and not going on YouTube into the late of the night because I had no need to wake up in the morning because I didn't have a job. And, and one thing that he said that helped me is in your head, at the very least in your head, have some sort of time that you consider your bedtime. And so I arbitrarily chose 10 o'clock and just that little thing was something so small I could commit to, you know, so small. Remember, we're talking about in the depths of depression here. That was the first start of my climb upwards, which I'll share more in another episode. But yeah, have a time that you think of as your bedtime. Don't just go to bed around this to this time because I know as adults, we don't have bedtimes. Make a bedtime for yourself. This is your bedtime. Okay. 
Procrastination. We tend to procrastinate when we are anxious. If you must procrastinate, do something productive, like checking off one of those less important and urgent to-do items on your list. Or do the dishes. Some little thing that's productive as opposed to scroll YouTube or Instagram or watch Netflix. Cold water. If you are stressed or anxious or overwhelmed, splash some cold water on your face. It helps to stimulate your vagus nerve. Gratitude. Gratitude is one of the other pillars he talked about, the main pillars, like exercise and sleep, cold water and procrastination. Those two tips were just little tips throughout the chapters. But gratitude, it's cool because gratitude, unlike everything else, does not depend on your circumstances. It's all in your mind. You could be poor and have nothing, but you could still be grateful for a breeze. It is purely in your head. So cultivate some sort of gratitude practice. And the last pillar he talked about that I enjoyed was friends and um, social connection. So as I mentioned before, depression is an isolating disease. First, it gets you because it makes you feel alone emotionally, and that causes you to now want to be physically alone, which, as you know, creates a downward spiral. So oxytocin is the main hormone neurotransmitter. I can't remember, but the main thingy he was talking about when it came to this chapter. As you know, oxytocin comes from love, comes from touches, hugs, sex. And here are some of the ways that you can imitate oxytocin. You can be warm physically, take a warm shower, uh, have some hot tea, you know, mug in your hand with the hot tea, wrap yourself in a blanket, get a massage. Obviously, pets are nice too. Um, but one thing that was very interesting to me was that people who have bad relationships with their parents are less receptive to the healing effects of oxytocin. That was very interesting to me because it made so much sense in my case. You talk about hugs and touches and sex, and I don't like any of that because I don't like being touched. If you touch me, I recoil and I feel worse. I feel uncomfortable as opposed to soothed. So this is a very interesting disclaimer. That being said, there is hope because we can learn, um, I guess our oxytocin levels can be rebalanced and fixed so long as there is constant stimulation. So consistent, constant stimulation, which in my head translates to some sort of stable relationship with a partner who has a secure attachment style. And again, like everything else he mentioned, it may not feel like anything is happening at first. So give it a bit, override it, and know that it will take some time to kick in on a scale that you notice, but at the moment it is helping at the level in your brain. I hope that was helpful. That's it. Bye-bye.